Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're on to our fifth episode of the Secret Space Program. Number five, Staying Alive. Staying Alive. Staying Alive. <laughs> staying Alive. Staying Alive. What's our episode tonight about, Brie? Tonight we're going to get into Majestic 12 Ooh. and also some James Forrestal action. Oh, okay. I like it. So as mentioned in our last episode, the U.S. had a lot of sightings and possible retrievals of flying saucers in the 1940s with a very heavy surge of reports in 1947, which is when Roswell was. And a lot of these sightings and occurrences or crashes or crash retrievals were happening in the Southwest areas, which was well known and pretty infamous about having nuclear and rocket testing. Two months after the Roswell crash, September 24th, 1947, the United States 33rd President Truman passed the National Security Executive Order, which eventually gave rise to the CIA, the NSA, allegedly the same day he formally assembled what is known as Majestic 12, Magic 12, or MJ-12. And just remember that a year prior, Truman had established the Central Intelligence Group. So it was definitely leading the way for these three-letter, you know, agencies, government agencies. So right now we're going to fast forward to 1984, just a little skirt jump. Um, and we're going to talk about kind of how the Majestic 12 became into the light of the world, how people started to know about it. There was this man named Jamie Shandera, who was a Hollywood producer and filmmaker, um, and he received a package without a return address on it, but postmarked Albuquerque, New Mexico. But inside this package contained nothing but 35 millimeter undeveloped film. Once the film was developed, it contained eight pages of alleged top secret documents marked with top secret slash magic eyes only. One of the memos is known as the Truman Forrestal memo. And the letter is dated September 24th, 1947, which is again, right after Roswell. And it was the same time that he passed the National Security Act. And the letter is from President Truman to the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. And it says, I'm going to read it verbatim here. Dear Secretary Forrestal, as per our recent conversation on this matter, you are hereby authorized to proceed with all due speed and caution upon your undertaking. Hereafter, this matter shall only be referred to as Operation Majestic 12. It continues to be my feeling that any further considerations relative to the ultimate disposition of this matter should reset solely with the office of the president following appropriate discussions with yourself, Dr. Bush and the director of central intelligence, signed by Harry Truman. There was another important memo that appeared to be stamped top secret, magic eyes only, and it was dated November 18th, 1952. So the document, I'm gonna read it verbatim again what it says. So it says, prepared by officer Admiral Roscoe H. Helen Cotter, parentheses MJ1. Briefing document, Operation Majestic 12. Preliminary briefing for President-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower. Operation Majestic 12 is a top secret research and development slash intelligence operation responsible directly and only to the President of the United States. 
Operations of the project are carried out and under control of the Majestic 12, or Magic 12, group, which was established by special classified executive orders of President Truman on the 24th of September, 1947, upon recommendations by Dr. Van Barr, Bush, and Secretary James Forrestal. Members of Majestic 12 were designated as follows. This is exactly what the document looks like. Admiral Roscoe H. Hellencotter, Dr. Vannevar Bush, Secretary James V. Forrestal, General Nathan Twining, General Hoyt Vanderberg, Dr. Detlef Bronk, Dr. Jerome Hensicker, Mr. Sidney W. Sawyers, Mr. Gordon Gray, Dr. Donald Menzel, General Robert M. Montague, and Dr. Lloyd V. Berkner. The death of Secretary Forrestal on May 22, 1949, created a vacancy which remained unfilled until the 1st of August, 1950, upon which date General Walter B. Smith was designated as permanent replacement. Can I make a side note? Does Dietlov person have anything to do with Dietlov? No. Damn it. Actually, I don't know. Could he? I you mean, look, you is, could look into so, it. So, like, this is alien D. I mean, like, you never know. Dietlov Pass could possibly be alien. Maybe it was a Majestic 12 operation. Stop. You should look into that. All right. The rest of the document stated that on July 7th, 1947, a secret operation began to assure recovery of any wreckage for scientific study. The document proceeds to go through the entire Roswell incident and provide immense details on what has been captured and witnessed, including the bodies and how, quote, a special scientific team took charge of removing these bodies for study. It mentions how, quote, news reporters were given the effective cover story that the object had been a misguided weather balloon, end quote. This document can be found on the CIA website and has officially been debunked in a very professional manner by the CIA handwriting bogus across the face of the entire document. Ridiculous. Bill Moore and Jamie Shandera also started receiving strange postcards with the return address P.O. Box 189 Ataboba, Ethiopia, mailed from New Zealand. Which is not a real address, obviously. Those are like five different places yeah. all in one address. It started pointing them to head to Washington, D.C. at the U.S. National Archives. They start digging through recently declassified Air Force intelligence documents and came across this memo from Robert Cutler to General Nathan Twining, one of the alleged Majestic 12 members. The document is now known as the Cutler Twining Document. It was labeled MJ-12 slash SSP, which we all know what SSP is. It's crazy because some people are like, oh, that means super secret project or something. I'm like, would they say super secret? I mean, I don't know. No, that sounds a little strange for the government. Super secret. They they would just be, like, classified. I don't know know what I mean. It's kind of funny, though. When they asked the archivist to Xerox a copy of the document, they found out it was box 189, the same P.O. box number that sent them the postcards. Someone was obviously leaving them breadcrumbs. Come to find out that box was first handled two weeks after the death of the last surviving MJ-12 member. Dr. Jerome Hensucker, scandalous. So basically, Majestic 12 was a group of 12 men consisting of six high-ranking military officers and six high-ranking scientists. MJ-12 would be a silent group operation meant to investigate and take control of all ET phenomenon, including crash retrievals and cover-ups. They had full security clearance and were able to make decisions without any oversight, which is important. Which is scary. I think this is the moment national security issues became larger than the president and black ops compartmentalization began, in my opinion. This is kind of like giving a group its own kind of authority to do whatever it wants. Exactly. I mean, without any oversight, 
site. That's not cool. And then also, could this be the real Men in Black? That's where I think it comes from. You know, I don't know if you've been able to watch the last episode that was released of Project Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how there's like a weird shadowy figures and they have like, they're the men in hats or whatever? I think that's the men in black. Ooh, that's an interesting observation. Which would be like Majestic 12. Majestic 12, yeah. Well, there's a lot of shit going back and forth and I think we'll go over men in black eventually, but there's a lot of connections to men in black and the Majestic 12 that a lot of people think that those two groups are the same thing. Yeah, I do. Do you really? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I don't. Why? I think that they're aliens coming down here themselves to cover shit up. And they wear suits. Yeah, well, they have to look like humans. You have to think about it. Maybe it was a part of the secret space program, and so they've already been, like, clear-soldierfied. Like, clearance to come down. Well, if you think about it, though, a lot of these aliens that they're meeting with people, like presidents and stuff, what are they all wearing? Suits and shit, right? So then the aliens get the notion that, okay, so everyone down there wears these suits. So how is it (gasps) so far off? They're like, everyone wears ripped jeans. Well, yeah, so, like, how far (laughs) off could it be, like, that they, if they only see people in suits and military uniforms, they would assume that that's what people wear so they wear suits down there i think that's so extra i'm just saying that's like too much majestic 12 even had documents that contained details on how to handle someone involved and what to do in order to keep it top secret dun 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 which again very very men in black like Basically, the smaller the group, the easier it is to keep the lid on the entire matter. And that was what was needed for the secrecy to continue. It doesn't really matter how many stars were on your shoulder. If you weren't in the need to know, you didn't know. And that was part of the whole process, I think, in the secrecy is if you keep it to such a small group and everyone else is thinking, well, no, I'm higher rank or whatever, I would know. The confusion just leads to more secrecy. And with that much confusion, it helps to not have the focus on them. And I think it's important to note that even with Project Sign and Project Grudge and with Project Blue Book, they didn't have access to everything that Majestic 12 knew. They are pretty much made to be the face of an investigation investigation so people thought that whatever was being witnessed was being investigated and that there was a conventional explanation to all of them so they knew everything and were there kind of to also confuse these other projects that were more well known well i think even if you look at project blue book you just look at the basis of the tv show itself that's going on right now what is it it's majestic 12 allegedly starting project blue book telling him to basically make all these claims go away, putting on a scientist with it to be like, this is going to validate it so mm-hmm. we know for sure so the government has knows what's going on. So I find it interesting that you say that they didn't know all the information because that makes sense to me because, because Majestic 12 obviously is going to be not giving out that information to just anyone. Yeah. And of course there's reports and people talking in the news and you know, to the media and things like that, that they had to put something out there that were going to stop all that information being traded. Right. So they make it look like these professional people are actually doing investigations, but really they're just meant to, just like in the show, sign the paperwork, close the deal. They're not actually going into the depths of what's really going on. That's Majestic 12. They're there to do the research, find out what's going on, and to cover up all evidence that there is even such an issue. So I've found that on some YouTube channels and including one that's rather popular these days and some other places, there are still a lot of people that don't trust these documents. And that's because there's a lot of mistakes and it's written in a way that you won't find in our current day. But I don't think that 
those people that are out there telling the story are really going into all the details of what's been found since then. Maybe they just don't know, but I would like to mention it to our listeners so that they know and that they're better informed so they can make up their own decision on whether or not these documents could be authentic. Well, to the effect that the documents had mistakes and things like that, who's not to say that these government officials didn't purposely put mistakes in it so that later down the line, if these documents were ever found, they could be like, oh, no, they spelt walrus wrong. There's no way that could be the government. (laughs) Walrus. Exactly. So one of the biggest points is that the memo lists the MJ-12 members and refers to them as just admiral or colonel. And the rank was really casual while referencing who they were. And it was also mixing the military and the civilian personnel in a random order. And there wasn't any specification on the rank, like rear admiral. Well, yeah. And usually with government documents, they're going to list the person who's at the top of the food chain and then go down from there. And that wasn't the case in this. Correct. But to that effect, can I just say, though, that like maybe they were all equals among themselves. So putting them in a certain order wasn't important in a military sense. So it's kind of that... People are thinking, no way, maybe we don't find that now. Of course, now they put importance or its own separate list or whatever, but also that it's not specifying exactly what rank that they had. Mm -hmm. But this is a different time. And so, again, Staten Friedman found documents of that time period in the Eisenhower Library and got a number of memos written by Brigadier General Goodpaster, who was Ike's staff secretary. The memos were about conferences with Ike and other personnel, including the head of the CIA, Secretary of State, and civilians. So at the top of the memo is the list of the attendees, and they were all mixed up in an order. Basically, He found other documents that weren't risque, I guess. They were just normal documents, but it listed things exactly like it did in the Majestic 12 document. Not in a particular order. Correct. And not highest ranking to lowest ranking. It just, as they walked in the door, they wrote their names down kind of deal. Yes. And even with the Brigadier General, when he listed himself in the list, he just put General Goodpaster. He didn't specify even himself in the ranks. So this was something that was just common. That's just what they did at the time. Maybe we don't do that now, but for there to be other documents that shows that they did do that, it kind of disproves the whole argument that, well, there's no way that this could be real because they're doing it in an order that there's no way they would because they did. Another reason why people don't believe the documents is because they're stamped top secret slash restricted. Normally, you would see that separate. So it's either restricted, meaning it's the lowest security rating, or it's top secret. Obviously, that would be the highest level of importance. But the GAO, which is the United States General Accounting Office of Washington, D.C., was conducting a study and they were going through documents all over the country and all kinds of archives to try to look for any evidence or documentation of Roswell. And they didn't find any paperwork on Roswell, but what they did find were several instances where the use of top secret slash restricted was stamped on documents. So it's not necessarily that there's some sloppy person putting together documents. Again, this was another instance where they use these types of terms and other documents back into that day. So it sounds like every time some type of issue comes up with verifying these documents, they have some excuse ready in their back pocket. And then as soon as they throw it out there, someone else researches it and then immediately debunks it. But then we're never given the courtesy of going back and explaining like, why that could be or them taking that back saying like oh okay no you're right exactly it's just scuffled off the last and the biggest one would be that dr menzel 
who was on the list, Dr. Donald Menzel. He was the only and seriously out of place person on the list. And so he was a Harvard astronomer and a very well-known UFO debunker of his time. He wrote books debunking the ET hypothesis and he worked very hard to squash any doubt that the subject could be real. So researchers, that was like their smoking gun of disproving that is look at in the list of people that you're saying was a part of MJ-12, but this guy devoted most of his life to also debunking the fact that that could be a possibility. So maybe it was thrown in there as a joke so that whoever took the document seriously when Menzel was pointed out would look like a fool. But then, in 1986, the very relentless Staten Friedman, who, throughout this entire investigation with Roswell and with these documents, he's very well known for his precision and how far he goes to prove that things can be real. Like, he takes so much time finding these things. He was allowed access to Menzel's papers at the Harvard University archives, which he had to have written approval in order to be cleared to even go through these. So while sifting through Menzel's papers, he found that Menzel had the longest association with the national security agency in the country. He had top secret clearance with the CIA. He was a cryptographer, so he did code breaking. He was head of the Naval Reserve Unit and the head of communications unit number one in Cambridge. He did classified work for about 30 different companies and agencies. He also had a close relationship with Vannevar Bush, another MJ-12 member that dated back to 1934. Staten also found that Menzel had numerous visits to New Mexico in 1947 and in 1949, which were all paid by government expenses. Staten also found a letter from Menzel to JFK before he was president about the Mars probe he was working on and said, quote, when we are properly cleared to each other, I can tell you more. Ooh, foreshadowing knowing that he was going to be the president by any means? Who knows? He also found that Menzel knew and corresponded with Admiral Roscoe Helen Cotter, the other MJ-12 member. So he found a letter of Menzel to Helen Cotter showing that he sent a copy of his books to Helen Cotter, one of his UFO debunking books. He sent him a copy and he asked what he thought about it. And when Helen Cotter replied with the letter, he said, quote, the book was done very well and effectively put to rest all surmises about flying saucers. Basically, Dr. Menzel was living a double life. No, no one knew that he had any of this background. And to me, it's obvious that I think he was more of a disinformation agent. Absolutely. He's there That's to be the head like of me. a strong he would know all of these things. He spends his life writing books disproving UFOs, but then really has this giant background with the CIA. That's ridiculous. It's a little fishy. Those are like the three biggest things that people try to use to debunk. And then it's just, there's a reason for all of them. There's more things that back it up. Well, the thing that gets me is that if MJ-12's job was really to suppress all of this alien information, of course they would find somebody who's at the top of Harvard who is known for debunking the shit. Like, of course he would be on... A Harvard astronomer? Yeah, of course he would be on Make the List because that only makes sense to find someone who has spent time in the public debunking it. You want him there consulting on how do we go about making sure that this shit stays debunked. There's, like, so much more with him, too. So I feel like if people really want to get into it, I mean, please dig deep into Menzel. There's so many weird letters and memos back and forth between them that say so much yeah, while say it's saying so little. so little. It's, like, so crazy. 
One of the most notable members of MJ-12 was James Forrestal, and his death was mentioned at the very last sentence of the last document that you read. And I feel like it's just a crime not to mention what happened to him. He's such a notable figure, and I've really come to be astounded by the situation of him. First off, James Forrestal was the very first Secretary of Defense for United States, and that was between 1947 to 1949. And he was buddies with JFK. He took JFK with him to Germany as his guest to check out recovered German craft right after the war. He wanted to recruit JFK to his personal staff, and he shared secrets with Kennedy about the UFO issue. We'll get into JFK in a later episode, but I just want everyone to remember this, put this in the back of your pocket, so that when we do jump forward to JFK, you'll remember that this was kind of the seed with JFK and his involvement into this issue. Well, what's funny is JFK is also known as a president. Like, when you think of JFK, a lot of people in media are like, oh, aliens. That's pretty funny. And so it's interesting that before his even, like, you know, real presidential run-in stuff like that, he's having all these run-ins with MJ-12. Yeah, with an MJ-12 member. I Mm -hmm. mean, back from 1945, this is crazy to me. It's interesting to learn that all these little things, they link to each other and mm-hmm. they're interwoven. And it's interesting. Basically, Forrestal wasn't an actual fan of the secrecy and he grew to believe that the public had a right to know. Which is maybe why he ended up dead. <laughs> he starts chatting with way too many people about the issue, including leaders and with congressmen. The other MJ-12 members saw Forrestal pretty much as a loose cannon because Majestic 12 really had one purpose and one purpose only. You know, that's to suppress what's going on and also to do what needs to be done by all means necessary to keep this a secret. Once word got to Truman about Forrestal's loud mouth, he was forced to resign. Then this is where things get interesting. So apparently Forrestal had some sort of mental breakdown. Quote unquote mental breakdown. He was going around saying that he was being followed and that they were out to get him. Mm. Due to what they called, quote, occupational fatigue, they had, (laughs) they committed James Forrestal into a mental health naval facility. Question. So it was uh, job fatigue. Is this the same thing like how women got hysteria? Sounds like it, but worse. I was just going to say, (laughs) is is the remedy to go home and like rub one out? Unfortunately, not go home. Be committed to a mental institution. Oh, God. Yeah. Do they rub you out every day? Oh, I'm sure he wishes. I don't think it was that beautiful. (laughs) So he was placed on the 16th floor of this mental health naval facility, even though it was strongly disadvised by his doctors. He didn't need to be up there. And also because he wasn't allowed to see anyone, not even his trusted confidant and priest. His priest attempted to see him six times, and each time he was told that Forrestal was unable to see him. They basically cut him off from the world. He had no contact except, allegedly, by some visits of Majestic 12 members. Is it safe to say that he was being gaslighted, that this may be the first instance instance in history where the government immediately is going out and attacking other people i mean it's crazy timing right you're talking too loud about things you shouldn't be and then you're forced to resign and then now you miraculously have a breakdown and now you're going into a mental institution and no one's allowed to talk to you yeah Uh, this is so sad um the very day forestall was to be released on may 22nd 1949 his brother henry forestall was to pick him up but forestall fell from the 16th floor of the building and the official story was that he hung himself he committed suicide wait 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 wait. hold on i'm getting into this okay. i'm gonna go into it okay, okay so 
Wait. <laughs> yes. That's the official report. Wait, wait. Can we just... The official report says that he fell from the 16th floor, but he hung himself. Yes. Here we go. So if you do some research, you will find that indeed Forrestal was acting paranoid. He called the White House during his stay at the hospital because he thought his room was being bugged. But could his room have been bugged? Like actually have been bugged? Or was he unreasonably suspicious? Was his mental state due to an actual and organic type of occupational fatigue? Or could this quote occupational fatigue have been something conceived for his downfall and by means of getting rid of him? Because you think of all the crazy things that the CIA mess with people's heads, right? I mean, could they have done something to him to create this unstable, disturbed mind? Uh, LSD, anybody? Despite the cause and the root of his disturbed mind state, the doctor stated that Forrestal was doing much better over his staycation. They said he would be fine in a couple weeks. His hospital records show that on May 17th, his doctors reported that Forrestal showed no signs of depression. His appetite was back. He gained 12 pounds. He was freshly shaved, hair combed, and he was in good spirits. Then on Friday, May 20th, James's brother, Henry Forrestal, informs the hospital that James should complete his recovery at a friend's estate and not at the hospital. So he told the hospital to prepare for him to be picking James Forrestal up on Sunday. According to the hospital records, that Sunday, May 22nd, James Forrestal is awake at 1.45 a.m. He's offered his sleeping pill, but declines. I think it's because he's probably antsy as fuck to get out of there and he doesn't want to waste any time sleeping in. I agree. I would be too. James was known for being a very intellectual man. He had cabinets of journals, which some of them were actually published. And so he's copying a Sophocles poem in his journal. She's probably just sitting there happy and inspired because he can taste freedom like seconds away. Mm -hmm. Forrestal's room is under constant watch. His personal attendant is a Marine guard who, I guess, if you go through the accounts, they had quite a close relationship. It's said that they kind of created a father-son-like relationship. The guy really looked up to him. And also at the time, Forrestal was really admired by the country. He was a really great man. And unfortunately, this was like his moment of downfall, but he became really close with his attendant. But well, and he was probably one of the only one of the only people who had contact with him, you know? His yeah. only friend, Very other true. than doctors. Very true. But for some unknown reason, his normal attendant was absent that day. The attendant filling in forgets to lock Forrestal's door after he offers James his sleeping pill. Bullshit. So the attendant comes back five minutes later to find the door wide open. So a search begins and a nurse reports hearing a loud noise, which was the sound of his body hitting the overhang of the third roof floor. The hospital claimed that once James noticed his door was unlocked, that he was suddenly depressed again, all of a sudden suicidal. He walked across the hall to the efficiency kitchen, pushes the unsecured window open, not one end of his bathrobe slashed tightly around his own neck, then ties the free end up to the radiator below the window, then lowers himself down the window to hang himself on the 16th floor. But he changes his mind, tries to claw himself back up, but the knot releases, he falls, and then he dies. In a hospital full of mental patients, you're telling me that it was possible that he could get across the hall and into the kitchen without 
anybody seeing him. And that the window would be unsecured enough for him to just push open and walk out the ledge. That doesn't make any sense. It also doesn't make any sense why you would, why would you go out to the 16th floor to hang yourself? If you wanted to hang yourself, couldn't you have found kind of anything? You would have just jumped out, right? Nothing about that adds up. And obviously there was some type of claw marks. And I think in this day we would find it as evidence of foul play. Mm -hmm. But at that time they were able to just sweep it under the rug. Yeah, it doesn't quite make sense to me that he's going to take all this time to kill himself. But then halfway through decide not to do it. Try to crawl back in. What sounds like what happens is they tried to make it look like a suicide. They probably did tie it around his throat and hold it. And was probably holding him there as he's clawing to try to get back up. And then they just release it to let him fucking go. Exactly. James Forrestal never finished writing that poem that he was last seen doing. The last word that he wrote was night from the word nightingale. So why would you stop halfway between a word? Why would you not finish your word out? To a lot of people, including myself, the only reason why you would stop halfway writing a word is if someone pulled you away from something or something huge was happening and you had to immediately drop. Or something interrupted you. You're sitting in your room and you're writing and you're in the middle of the word night and the door opens so you stop what you're doing and look. You know? The priest that had been trying to see him six times, which was told that he could not have any contact with him, he came to the hospital to pay his respects after it happened. And I guess everyone was going to that hospital. And he said the lobby was just flooded with people. And that a man in a white coat walked by him, leaned into his ear, and whispered, you know James didn't kill himself, don't you, father? And then walked away. The priest went on record saying that. Mm-hmm. Now, why the hell would the priest lie? But besides the point that doesn't matter. Everything else to me is enough evidence to show that that was a very fucked up and obvious situation. I mean, at least enough evidence in today's standards where we wouldn't write it off as just a suicide. No fucking way. The fact that they said that he was doing well, it seems like whether or not he did have an authentic breakdown, whether it was given or created by the CIA or if he really was having a hard time, he was doing better in there. And for them to document that he was in well spirits, he was doing well. He's like, all right, now I'm going to be like a proper gentleman. I'm going to like shave my beard. I'm going to get dressed. Does that sound like someone that's miraculously extremely suicidal on the very day that they're going to be released? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, I think there's even enough to question. Let's pretend like he wasn't in great spirits just to hear that he would have been getting out that day yeah, you would and then he yourself. committed suicide. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Okay, I'll put it in this perspective because we always should come at it from both sides of the coin. Let's say you're very depressed and maybe you feel like being in the hospital is getting you better, but then to be told that they think you're well enough to go out into the world and maybe that thought is just overwhelming. Yeah. But I only think about that in the sense of if he was still depressed, but he clearly was getting better and ready to get, obviously wanted to get out. But I'm just saying on the flip side, though, if the documents were to say that he was still really horrible and things like that, then, yeah, I can understand like, okay, that kind of makes sense to me because then you have that threat of I feel safe here and I'm cut off from the world and I'm healing and you're going to rip it away and throw me back into the world again where I don't want to be. Right. But I mean, also, this was his brother offering for him to leave. It wasn't something that he had to do. Yeah. Obviously, he could have finished out his time there at the Mm -hmm. hospital. He's a big boy. He could have said, you know what? I think I'm going to finish my time here. Yeah. 
this is doing pretty good for me, you know? He obviously wanted to get out of there. I mean, absolutely. The whole story is crazy to me. I heard about it a long time ago, and I feel like the more I get into it, the more, like, not angry, but almost, like, fascinated by it because I feel so bad for him, and it's just an atrocity to me, the whole situation. Well, there's something about these three-letter agencies and when people, you know, disappear, come up missing and things... It seems like the go-to is always goddamn suicide. Yeah. Some sort of make it look like they committed suicide or, well, they just left the country of their own free will and disappeared kind of thing. So it's interesting that we have this very first case of this gaslighting and it happens to be something like a suicide because it kind of puts in trend what they continue to do to people in these fields who come out and speak about it. Yeah, and I've heard other researchers say, you know, it probably wasn't anything personal. It was probably just business. It's the fact that they had a loose end. He probably should have known, in my opinion, who he was dealing with being a part of this group. He should have known the repercussions of him going and talking about it to other people. Whether or not you think it's the right thing to do, you know who you're dealing with because you're a part of the people. Well, I think that the government learned a very big lesson there about who you can trust with information. And we're probably and probably still are a lot more detailed and quiet about all of this. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. I'm going to have to say that let's just pretend like Majestic 12 is still going on right now. Right. They have all 12 new members, obviously, because everyone on that list is long gone by now. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you there's not some memo somewhere that has them all listed out. No. Because the government got smarter than that. They don't leave breadcrumbs and trails too much anymore. They're a Mm -hmm. lot more beyond that. So when a lot of people say that, well, how come we don't have documents today that come out or blah, blah, blah. Well, obviously the government has learned its lesson throughout the years and they know a lot better than to just fucking mark top secret memos and just leave them places. Like, there is the government, as much as they keep track of everything, there's a lot of shit that they don't keep track of. You can't have a paper trail. Nope. That's also another reason why in these documents, when you go through all the MJ-12 documents, a lot of the stuff you have to sort of read between the lines because you have to think that these are the secretaries that are typing these papers. So they don't have a need to know. You really have to do the best you can to keep as little information as possible. This was probably the last time that they put any of this shit in a fucking memo. Okay, it's probably sure. like, meet me on the corner of 33rd and Pablo. I bet you they don't even do emails or text messages. No, not at all. Maybe they use like Ravens. <laughs> Pigeons? Oh my God. Wait. <laughs> But pigeons are actual, like, government drones and surveillance Oh, my God, things. stop. By the way, when you said that, I walked outside and I saw a bird. Did you? I swear to God. Did it look at you? I don't know. I don't often are like, bird, make eye contact, <laughs> eye contact. You see me? I'm I the captain. You, I bet you what it was is the government has a bug inside of work. And they heard me say that I haven't seen any birds since the government shut down. So they immediately sent one because they were like, guys, they're on to us. Place a bird. Place a bird. Well, who the hell's working for free right now? Okay, so you have to remember, uh, all these operations are done by black money, and the government might True. be closed down, but the shadow They're government like, we not. Got plenty. Exactly. We're still balling over here. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, where we've ended off, we've read the, the MJ12 documents. We've provided reasons why people don't believe them and why there's reason to disregard those reasons. But that's completely up to you guys. We've gone through Truman. We ended with Forrestal. This really ends our timeline and the end of the late 40s shenanigans. Mm -hmm. And now with that last document is leading us into Eisenhower, which we can get into our next episode. Absolutely. All right, Bree, let's get into our favorite part of the episode. Shout out. Shout out. 
We have Jan from The Good, The Bad, and the Just Plain Standard podcast. Then we have our true seekers, Destiny at Destiny from Space. Love you, Destiny. Hey, boo-boo. We have our first made-up category, which is a skeptical truth seeker. We have Adam from the Not For Everyone podcast. Then we have our middle bitches with our number one, Raya. Hey, boo-boo. Thank you for all of our presents. We just got our stuff in the mail, and there is a package going to be on the way to you. We also have Scotty at Scotty Doodle. We also have Bobby from the Not For Everyone podcast as well. You can find him at Pinball Bobby and at not for everyone podcast or find them on twitter at nfe podcast we have our second made-up category which is the skeptical middle bitch (laughs) we have ap at weather traditions love you ap love you april last but not least we have the anything is possible level and we have matt hey matt thank you everyone for supporting us we love you guys Thank you guys so much for tuning in tonight. Listen next week for our sixth episode, and we will hear from you guys soon. Hit us up on Instagram at that one time I was abducted. Shoot us an email at that one time I was abducted at gmail.com. And you know, follow us on all the social medias. Thank you guys. Good night. Fuck you, Mountain View, California night. <laughs>